Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Goomba Daru, Goomba Gyanindu, which is good day, it's good to see you, and that's in the language of Baragam, which is from the community that I grew up on, the Darling Downs. And uh, 2019 is the International Year of Indigenous Languages, and, and here at the State Library, we're aiming to include traditional languages in our everyday activities. And the year will also give us an opportunity to profile the significant work that we do in documenting, preserving, and making accessible traditional languages of Queensland. So good evening ladies and gentlemen, my name is Vicky McDonald and it's my great privilege to be the State Librarian and CEO of your State Library. I'd like to welcome you to the State Library of Queensland this evening for our second Grattan Institute State of Affairs Lecture for 2018. But let me begin by first acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and pay respects to the ancestors who came before them. The State Library of Queensland is located on Kirulpa Point which is a traditional meeting, gathering and sharing place for Aboriginal people. And we proudly continue that tradition today and every day. I'd also like to acknowledge and welcome our event partner, Grattan Institute, and in particular tonight's guest speaker, Stephen Druckett, Grattan's Health Program Director and Moderator, Marketing Manager, Megan French. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, it's fantastic to have you here this evening. So we all have a hospital story. And these stories are often filled with human drama and emotion. They live with us as powerful memories, an emergency ride in an ambulance, a broken leg at the sports carnival, or the birth of a longed-for child. State Library of Queensland's extensive collections help explain the state's extraordinary medical history. For example, we hold Eleanor Elizabeth Burns papers. And Eleanor was the state's first female doctor and was responsible for establishing the principles for the medical examination of children in 1911. We also hold hospital papers from Mount Isa dating back to the 1920s, as well as motion pictures from the Mater Health Service from 1948 onwards. So there's much to discover and enjoy here at the library. But tonight's discussion centres on what happens when things don't go to plan in a hospital setting. And it marks the second Grattan Institute State of Affairs lecture for 2018, as I mentioned. So Grattan is a non-partisan think tank committed to providing independent, rigorous and practical solutions to some of the country's most pressing issues. And I'm sure some of you have probably attended some of our previous sessions as well. We've been partnering with the Grattan Institute for a number of years and we're really proud that the collaboration is continuing in 2018 because it is very much a thought-provoking series that deals with the policy issues of the day. The State Library aims to be an inclusive and welcoming place for all people, offering a safe space for open public discussion and debate, both online and on site. And at State Library, we want to inspire possibilities through knowledge, stories and creativity. We encourage robust conversation and the sharing of diverse voices and opinions to form a collective representative picture of our state and people. And I'm sure there's going to be plenty of robust discussion and, and, and uh, issues to think about this evening. Um, the first Grattan Institute lecture we held in May this year saw an engaging panel discussion on the Gonski II Review and the future of education in Australia. Tonight we have an opportunity to broaden our understanding of the healthcare system and the impacts of complications in hospitals. And I guess everybody has some hospital experience and, is, and it's something that um, we all need to be aware of. 
Our guest speaker tonight is Stephen Druckett, and he'll unpack the report, All Complications Should Count, Using Our Data to Make Hospitals Safer. The report was published in February this year and makes recommendations around greater public reporting and transparency reforms that could result in an extra 250,000 patients rather, leaving hospital free of complications each year, so quite significant numbers. Some interesting questions will be posed and the possible outlook for health outcomes will also be considered. So we look forward to hearing from Stephen both in his presentation and he'll also address your questions as well. So I do hope that you enjoy the discussion and that the insights that it, um, it provides. If you want to know more about the topic, of course I know a great library where you can find the answers and the resources to help you with that. So I'll hand over to Stephen now to uh, lead the uh, conversation. Thanks Stephen. So thank, thanks very much, Vicky. Um, and I too would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and elders past, present and emerging. And also remind you that those acknowledgements of country are not issues of rote. Uh, in, in fact, every time anybody's done a study of the quality of care provided to Indigenous Australians, they've always found that there's a significant difference uh, in outcomes and so on. And we all know that the Indigenous Australians live about a decade uh, shorter than uh, the non-Indigenous Australians. So when you hear those acknowledgements of country, you might think about that as well. When you came into the lecture today, you were handed a little sheet. Later on in my talk, we'll, um, we'll use that to get your opinions uh, of some of the issues that I'm, that I'm raising today. Um, so I'm going to briefly cover two of the reports we've done on quality and safety. Um, this, uh, whoops, this one, uh, which was the first we did, which my colleagues, or in fact Norman Swan from the ABC Health Report unkindly referred to as a bit of a nerd report. Um, it's, uh, it, it talks about different ways of measuring uh, hospital safety. And this one uh, is all complications should count. And basically it has the uh, rather startling conclusion that all complications should count. That is, we should count all sorts of complications, not just some of them. Um, but I'm also mainly going to talk about the third report in our series which starts to look at financial implications of safety and quality alongside all the other implications that we've been talking about. So I'll, I'll, the structure of the talk is a, a, a bit of an introduction about how, how big the problem is, um, then talking about financial incentives. I'm an economist, so it's almost inevitable we start talking about dollar, things with dollar, dollar signs in front of them. And we also will be talking about uh, governance interventions such as hospital accreditation. So if a lot of our work has been based on analysis of hospital data and the numbers I'll show you, uh, if they don't have dollar signs in front of them, uh, uh, information obtained from all public and private hospitals in Australia. And if they do have dollars in, in front of them, they're information obtained from the biggest a biggest hospital, biggest public hospital in Australia that account for about 80% of all hospital activity. Now, what this slide shows is this, that, that basically there are a number of different ways of measuring complications. 
sentinel events. These are things that are very rare, uh, about 0.0012% of all admissions, and they um, are things like operating on the wrong side of, of a person's body, wrong side surgery, for example. Uh, incidentally, they are essentially random events. There's been a number of studies overseas which show they, they follow what's called the Poisson distribution, which is a random distribution. Um, and so they're, they're a, an interesting object of policy to focus on random events. Um, the second type of uh, uh, way of measuring is hospital-acquired complications. It's a list which has been developed by the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare uh, and endorsed by health ministers. Um, when the commission developed it, it said you shouldn't imagine that all these things are preventable. Um, but when the ministers endorsed it, they said this is a list of preventable adverse events. Um, so, as we know, ministers are all not all omniscient. So um, this must be a list of preventable adverse events, even though the Commission of Safety and Quality and Healthcare said they're not. Um, but what's interesting is is they're not very common. Uh, only about two percent of all admissions uh, have have a such a complication. Whereas when you look at all complications, uh, it's much more frequent. And what we said in our, in our all complications should count is that rather than these two, which are the focus of much of policy at the moment, and including things that are described as financial incentives, we should be looking at the whole lot. Because if you're a hospital and you're going well on the hospital-acquired complications, you then have a false sense of, of complacency uh, and you're not looking at all of the things that might go wrong. So... Uh, and this is another way of, of showing the same thing. In this particular slide, we say, well, there's about 11% or so of all admissions have something go wrong. If you got rid of all, uh, got rid of all of the hospital-acquired complications, you'd only drop that to by about 0.4 of a percent. But what we're saying is that if you if you think more broadly and look at all complications you can actually start to drop the rate more. Uh, so if you can get down to the rate that the best 25% of hospitals achieve, you can drop a further one or so percent. And if you can get down to the rate of the best 10% of hospitals, you can get down even further. And of course, what we're saying is you can't get rid of uh, all the complica can't get rid of complication all of the complications, um, but you can get you can move to the situation where where you where your every hospital is is performing better than it than it has been. So that 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 is sort of talking about just describing the incidence of complications. More recently, we've started to look at the cost of complications, and this particular slide looks at the most expensive complications and the most expensive complication is complications of transplants, where each time a patient has that complication, it adds $26,000 to the care of that patient, to the cost of care of that patient. Now, there aren't a great number of those across Australia every year either. Um, so uh, these, these are dramatic things, cost a lot of money, but they're rare. 
more interestingly, from my perspective, is the more common. And so the, uh, the fourth item on this list is infections, hospital-acquired infections, which add, there are, there are a lot of them, but each of them is not nearly as expensive as complications of transplants. But together, they add up to about a billion dollars a year of additional costs. So these things cost a lot of money. So the title of this talk today was Safer Care Saves Money. And so what our, our argument is, is that contrary to popular belief that quality costs a lot of money, good quality saves a lot of money if you can reduce this. Now, we can't reduce all of it, uh, but you can reduce some of it. So these are frequent but less dramatic, but the cost of them adds up. So the total down there is 4.6 billion. Uh, that's, these are public hospital numbers. If you assume private hospitals are roughly the same, you end up with a total cost of complications of about five and a half billion a year uh, in Australia in 2014-15. But what's interesting, I think, is that this slide, each of these little dots is one of the bigger public hospitals in the country. And the way public hospitals are funded uh, we have a system called activity-based funding which involves classifying patients according to what are called diagnosis-rated groups. And a diagnosis-rated group uh, has a sort of a severity indicator. And the more severe the patient is, in certain, they, they go into a higher DRG. The higher the DRG, the more money a hospital gets paid for treating those patients. But what's interesting is you get into a higher DRG either because you have, you're a more complicated patient fronting up to the hospital, so you go into hospital for hip replacement but you've already got diabetes, for example, or because something goes wrong in the hospital. The first lot are called comorbidities, the second lot are called complications. So you go up into a higher DRG in any event. Now, so that means that a hospital gets paid extra money for having complications, which sounds perverse, but, and it is. But, but, so we measured the amount of extra revenue that these public hospitals got because they had those complications. We then compared that with how much those complications probably cost the hospital. We've just done the analysis showing you how much the complications cost. And so this is what this graph is. So this the, the uh, horizontal axis is the cost of complications and the vertical axis is the uh, increased funding. And so what you can see is in every instance the costs are greater than the revenue. In every instance we looked at. This means that hospitals have a financial incentive already to reduce complications. And so adding additional financial incentives into the policy mix may not be necessary. Not only that, but almost in every case, the cost of complications was more than two and a half times the revenue they got. So quite powerful financial incentives are in, should be in place or are in place. But the problem is the hospitals don't know this. The hospitals do not have the skills to do the analysis of the costs of complications. 
and they probably haven't thought about looking at the extra revenue they get from complications. So a financial incentive doesn't work if there's um, if people don't know about it, and it doesn't work if it becomes too complicated. So, so one of the recommendations we're making in this second report, in this next report, is to argue that hospitals should be told this sort of information so they can use it themselves in how they manage. As I mentioned that uh, when you add public and private together, you get five and a half to six billion of costs. And if you can reduce the complication rate to the best 25% uh, of hospitals, you save about a billion and you save a bit more if you can reduce it to the best 10% of hospitals. So you could reduce the cost of complications uh, by about one and a half billion, about a third or so of the costs of uh, complications. And you can assign that to, to, host, to states and our guess is 370 million in, in Queensland, but that's just applying a population share. This is a bit of a complicated slide, but, but basically what it shows is we looked at the rate of complications in every specialty, say in the top line there or the third line down, neurosurgery, and in a in a given hospital, and compared that with the rate of complications in another specialty, say ophthalmology, in the same hospital, and we found basically there was no relationship between the rate of complications in neurosurgery and the rate of complications in ophthalmology. Now, in a sense, it would not surprise. That's not a surprising result because neurosurgeons rarely do ophthalmology, and ophthalmologists rarely do neurosurgery. And so, you know, you, you wouldn't expect that. And this, these bars say, what are all of those regression analyses? What are all of those comparisons, one with another? And basically, we find that the association, one with another, is more or less, I won't say non-existent, but very, very weak, that, that basically we're, we're talking about explaining almost only 20% or so of the variation in complication rates in one in one specialty is explained by complication rates in another specialty in the whole in the same hospital. So the consequence of that is, if you think about it, why would you expect hospital-wide analyses to actually work in comparing in in trying to improve complications? Because the the hospital-wide effect seems to be weak. That is, the specialty effect, one specialty doesn't affect another. And the other point, of course, is hospitals are very tribal, and so what one hospital does and is, is unrelated to what another, what one specialty does in one hospital may be unrelated to another. So you, you've, you've, we've got to think about much more nuanced governance and incentive arrangements than we have. What we also looked at is, is there much variation? Well, each dot in this in this case is is a comp is is ten percent of the hospitals in our sample, and here we're looking at the variation in essentially the complication rate. It's it's in fact statistically the the excess risk, but essentially you can think of it as a complication rate, and you can see there's quite big variation in in rates of complications in some specialties, and in fact in all specialties, that, that there's significant difference between the best 10% of hospitals and the worst 10% of hospitals. And we looked at a couple of different ways of measuring this. So 
what we're saying is there's a lot of variation in what's going on, so we ought to be able to improve what's going on by getting everybody down to the performance of the best best quartile, the best 25% or the best 20%. So then you say, well, let's say we've got a target. Let's say we want to reduce complications. There are a number of governance or in any policy area, there are, you're trying to influence the behaviour of organisations, professionals, people, communities, and there are a limited number of ways you can do it. One way is financial incentives, one way is governance incentives, you might have rhetoric, you might have rules and regulations and whatever. Obviously the trick is to make sure all of these things are aligned, but in our previous report on all complications should count, we said one of the big things to do is to provide information. The first thing you've got to do is to make sure the clinicians in the hospitals, the managers in the hospitals have the information they need to compare their performance. I remember when I was working in Alberta, we set up what was called an orthopaedic clinical network and I met with the, one of the senior orthopaedic surgeons from Edmonton and he just got his first results of his performance. I think it was on readmission rates, but I forget what the metric was. And I asked him, you know, how, how did he go? And he said, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of the pack. And I said, oh, that's great, that's good. And he said, no, I've never seen myself as an average surgeon. So this, this is called the Kruger-Dunning effect in the literature, that everybody, or the, or the Lake Wobegon effect, that, you know, all the kids are above average and, you know, all the orthopaedic surgeons are above average. So, you know, what, what, we're, what we're saying is if you provide the information that's meaningful, that the clinicians themselves have developed, then uh, that's... You won't get improvement without doing that. You may not get improvement with doing that, but you won't get improvement without it. So you've got to actually put information in the hands of hospitals, in clinicians and hospitals. And that's what we said in our previous report. But in this report, we're looking at two different sets of incentives. One is financial incentives and one is regulation. And I must declare a conflict of interest here. I'm an economist. And so when I wake up in the morning, I start thinking about financial incentives. As, as I would also mention, I'd also mention, though, that in this report we're pretty sceptical about the effect of financial incentives. So this part is about what to do about financial incentives. Well, what's happened over the last 50 years is safety thinking has to some extent evolved. Back in the, in the dim dark ages, safety was seen as secret doctor's business done between consenting adults in private. And, and basically the, the paradigm was that problems of healthcare, of quality in healthcare, were individual bad apples. We can see the same discussion happening about out-of-pocket costs. It's egregious charging by a few doctors that is the problem. And so the answer was improved mortality and morbidity meetings and protection of the quality review processes so they weren't discoverable in, in litigation. Then people thought, well, hang on. Hospitals, especially public hospitals, is a team issue. And so we've got to think about the system where safety is a hospital-wide issue involving not only doctors but nurses, allied health cleaners and everybody else. And so we started thinking about a systems approach. We started introducing incident reporting systems. In Victoria, it's not appropriately called an incident reporting system, it's an incident management system or an incident collection system because it collects a whole lot of information about incidents but it doesn't report any information out. 
um, which is an interesting role for a, an, an IT system. Um, but it, 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 the, as part of this, there was an increased role of nurses, increased oversight by government agencies. In the last decade, we've started to think about safety as a public issue and started to talk about public reporting of adverse events and complications, starting to talk about what I call the epidemiology of outcomes. So rather than focusing on individual incidents, starting to look at patterns more broadly. And finally, we've moved in the last gained decade or so to focus on safety as a payer issue and started talking about financial incentives and value-based care. And we contributed to some of this in the public reporting space by advocating uh, public reporting of uh, outcomes of care. Um, so the issue of financial reporting, uh, of financial incentives is, is an interesting one. Um, P for P there stands for pay for performance. Um, but basically, the evidence about financial incentives is very, very weak. So this is a, a summary of the, uh, the literature um, in both ambulatory and hospital care <clears throat> uh, and how the, uh, the study was, how the, the evidence was designed. Now, there are a couple of issues to note. Whoops. The first is um, how strong the evidence is. And, and that's partly an issue of how the study was designed, partly how big the study was and so on. But you see that most of those, most of these studies, uh, this was published in 2017, the effects of paper performance, most of these studies are very low-grade evidence. Um, but the second thing to note is what are the findings, and basically, don't try and read it all, but stronger study design showed little to no effect, stronger study showed no effect, one US study showed an effect, one study, you know. So basically, the res not only were the studies poorly designed, but the results don't give you confidence that financial incentives work. So there are two responses, two take-home messages from that, and you can choose which one is your favourite. One take-home message is all of the study, all of the financial incentives were poorly designed and I can design a much better financial incentive. And so this literature is entirely irrelevant. Or you can say, we should be sceptical about financial incentives. Uh, and the latter is what all of this literature says, that basically there are a whole lot of other incentives at play, uh, such as reputational incentives and so on. So financial incentives may not add much into that, into that space. So despite all of that, the ministers um, for health, very few of them read the academic literature on financial incentives. But so they, they decided to implement a national approach to um, uh, financial incentives, which I've called the national apparent approach for reasons that will come obvious later. But they started with the things that are irrelevant, not quite irrelevant, because each of them is significant to an individual person, but almost trivial in their incidents. Uh, and they said the Commonwealth will not pay the states any money at all if a sentinel event occurs in the, in the, in the admission. And that moved, let's say, a million around, you know, trivial a trivial amount of money. The, and that came into effect on the 1st of July 2017. On the 1st of July 2018, a new uh, incentive came into effect, which was this 
designated complications, the hospital acquired complications list, where there is a payment adjustment. And the, the, the way of calculating it is quite complex, but basically um, it reduces the payment to a state if there's a change in, in the incidence of these things, or, in, or increases it if there's a reduction. Um, and the payment differs where the risk is low, so there's a risk adjustment. Um, and here is, here is the, the actual, there, there are 16 of these hospital-acquired complications, and this is the, the sort of potential size of, of the adjustment in, 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 each, in each particular case. Um, so it, it's quite a complicated formula. However, it's even more complicated by the way it sits within the overall scheme of things. So the first, the first thing you need to check is, did a hospital-acquired complication occur? If it did not, well, there's obviously no impact on the flow of funds from the Commonwealth to the States. The second thing you need to check is, was the rate of complications constant? Because what they've done in the calculation is say, we're only, we're going to standardise um, the complication rate at each hospital. And so we're going to look at each hospital. And if the rate changed in that hospital, then there's a potential for a penalty. So it's, it's standardising the starting point. It's a process called backcasting. And so if the rate of complications is constant, then there's no impact on funding. So even if, if you have, if your hospital has 10 times the national rate of hospital-acquired complications last year, and you have 10 times the national rate this year, there's no impact on funding. Then the second question, the next question was, was the national growth rate and the state's growth rate above 6.5%? Um, the, the amount of money that flows to the, from the Commonwealth to the states is capped nationally at a growth rate of 6.5%. So if your state has a 7% growth rate and the impact of all these complications drops your growth rate from 7% to 6.9%, well, you're still above the cap, so there's no impact on your funding. Finally, so that then, if you go through all those filters, your, your funding from the Commonwealth to the state might be affected. But here's the trick. There's this there's this uh, thing called the Grants Commission, which, um, despite its innocuous-sounding name, is some sort of mysterious magician who, who sits in Canberra. And they use a process called horizontal fiscal equalisation, which has some meaning, but there are seven people in the country who understand what that meaning is. And it, it results in the distribution of funding uh, between the states. And this Grants Commission overrides all that stuff that I've just been talking about. So they don't take any notice of any of that. They put all of the money that goes into the pot in the pot and then distribute it the way they want to distribute it, not the way that's described. So the, uh, the way of said the, the money... Uh, so essentially what is happening is that all of these safety adjustments affect the total amount of money the Commonwealth pays the states, not what each individual state gets, let alone what each individual hospital gets. So even though it's complex and beautiful and looks nice on a piece of paper, and I've been to presentations where people have got up and said, this is how the money actually flows, it's not how the money actually flows. 
Anyway, but come back to, and it's supposed to create, you know, a financial incentive on states to worry about complications. Well, there is already a financial incentive on states to worry about complications. The cost of complications is way bigger than any revenue impact that there might occur. And this creates a business case for quality. That is, in each, in each hospital, you can now go to the CEO, if they knew what they were doing, and say, look, if you re reduce infections, you'll reduce the cost in this hospital by this amount. Now, some people say, well, um, extra excess quality costs money and the better hospitals have lower complication rates and they're more expensive because they've done all these things. Well, what we did is, is this is the, we analysed medical cardiology, admissions in medical cardiology uh, in public hospitals over the three-year period 2012 to 2015. And each orange dot here is a hospital. And we've divided the hospitals on the horizontal axis by essentially their complication rate. As I said, it's, it's, for technical reasons, it's actually their risk of a complication uh, the, attributable to hospital performance. And so you can see there are hospitals that, that vary a lot. On the vertical axis, we've actually got a measure of efficiency. That is, are, they, are the costs in medical cardiology above or below what's called the national efficient price? And so what you can see is we've divided the world up into four squares, four quadrants. We've got less efficient hospitals up here with poorer quality, more efficient hospitals down here with poorer quality, more efficient hospitals with better quality and less efficient hospitals with better quality. There's no evidence of a relationship between the quality of care, at least as measured as complication rates, and the cost of care. And this, because this is the only specialty we did because we had to standard, we have to do a whole lot of risk adjustment processes to standardise for the different sorts of patients. Well, obviously, if you divide them up, you've got a, you've got a, a quadrant here where it's probably better not to be either the CEO or the patient, um, a less efficient, poorer quality quadrant. Um, you've got a, a quadrant down here where, where they ought to pull themselves up by their bootstraps uh, because they're already efficient, and, but they, they ought to be able to allocate some of their excess money uh, to improving quality. Um, over here, where I don't know what to do about them because they're, 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 they're inefficient, but they're actually doing quite well on the quality dimension. And down here where the halo is, um, you've got good hospitals on both dimensions. But even within this quadrant, this hospital here can move down to be more like this hospital here. So uh, the, and when you're applying financial incentives, you've got to think, are you, are you applying it you know, to to all of these hospital, all of these hospitals, which are more expensive, um, and what are they going to do, and so on. So it's a, a really you've got to, the whole point of this is to say, well, let's be a bit more nuanced in what we're doing. So as I said, we, if if you're going to do financial incentives, don't do them the way the Commonwealth is doing them. Do them on a more nuanced basis. Make sure you've provided information to people so they know what they're doing. Anyway, so then we looked at other incentives and in particular governance incentives. And hospital accreditation is a program where uh, surveyors come and visit hospitals every now and again. Um, I rather like the program of hospital accreditation because hospitals have to 
provide a whole lot of documentation to the surveyors and I have shares in Australian paper mills and so it, um, it, it, a major benefit of accreditation is the share price. Um, there there do, doesn't appear to be many other benefits because there's, there's a lack of evidence in the literature for overall value of accreditation. Um, the standards themselves lack a strong evidence basis. The surveyors there's, there's have weak inter-rater reliability. The medical staff think it's irrelevant. Um, the, the safety is not tested, uh, nor patient outcomes systematically measured. That is, if your hospital is the best in the world, or rather, there's a standard in the, in the hospital accreditation standards for infection control. They don't look at the data in your hospital before they visit it to see is your hospital one of the hospitals with high rates of infections or low rates of infections. So the, the data are not taken into account in the accreditation survey. And there are no incentives for excellence. So, uh, and they don't publish the, so apart from all that, the Romans think it's a good thing. Um, so what we said is, well, this doesn't seem to be right. I mean, more or less every hospital which has had a major safety scandal in Australia in the last 20, 30 years has been accredited. Bundaberg, for example, accredited. Bacchus Marsh uh, was about to be re-accredited when they discovered uh, the poor quality there. Uh, this is a, a rather nice little study where they looked at um, the effect of the accreditation visit. And so these are me different measures of quality, in, uh, sorry, different hospitals. And, and this is a quality measure. This is 30-day mortality, I think. Um, and so before the, the, the survey, uh, this is their quality. During the survey, this is their quality, and after the survey, and down is good. So what we can see is accreditation actually does make a difference for the week of the survey, um, which is probably not the best um, uh, uh, endorsement of accreditation. Um, this is uh, an analysis framework that developed by a very famous uh, management theorist called Henry Mintzberg, uh, and he looked at organisations as having an operating core that the, where the day-to-day -day business is and support staff and techno structure. But hospitals, he said, look more like that, what he called a professional bureaucracy, where very, very big operating core, very powerful operating core of doctors and nurses, support staff, very big and little, little of the other stuff. But uh, what's interesting is quality assurance, the accreditation process is all about upward accountability, but most interestingly, the, the interaction between the support staff and the, and the doctors is actually quite weak in the accreditation process, and by and large, medical staff don't think it has much validity, and, they, and what you seem to happen is, is a whole lot of churn within the, the, opera, uh, the hospital without much actual improvement. So we're suggesting that what needs to happen is there needs to be more, we need to move the focus of accreditation away from a quality assurance focus more to a quality improvement focus, that is trying to help the hospital improve itself. And um, there is a review of standards going on, um, but we don't think that review is strong enough. As I said, in the, there's already a standard there about infection control. Um, and the infection update is there's an increased presence of antibiotic-resistant organisms, which could result in an increased presence of regulatory surveys. So, um, so what we're suggesting 
is that you start the process by giving data to the hospitals. You don't start the process by giving them a, a list of standards. We start the process by saying, what is your performance like on all of these dimensions of quality? And you, you actually focus using clinical outcome measures, um, which might start with hospital-acquired complications. It might, start, it might include patient-reported outcome measures. And they're objective measures about the performance of the hospital. You then you add, as well as that, patient experience measures and staff experience measures uh, to actually capture other important dimensions of quality. And so you start with a process where you say, this is, evident, this is about where you are as evidenced by the difference between your performance and other hospitals like you. And you do that not only at the hospital level, but at the clinical unit level, because as I said earlier, hospitals are tribal. Hospitals then develop their action plans to improve how they're going to improve. And the purpose of the accreditation visit is to come along and review that uh, implementation plan to say how could it be improved, what's your progress been, did you develop it well, and actually to say we want to help you improve yourself. And then uh, this, the surveyors write a report about all of that and they're named so it becomes some sort of accountability process. The whole report, the data about the hospital is published so people can see not only how they stand on their comparative performance but what they are doing about their comparative performance. What actions are they taking to improve? Now, I'm going to ask you four questions shortly uh, which is sort of about moving from the current focus of accreditation, which is very event-focused, uh, to try and move accreditation to an outcome improvement focus. And here we are in 2018. We might want to say, what can we achieve in 2020 or 2030 or 2070 or whatever? So what sort of time frame could we move away from the existing process focus? And so there are going to be four questions that I'm going to ask you about. Um, assuming the data are good enough, to what extent is a shift to an outcome focus the right way to go? Assuming the data are good enough, to what extent is a shift to improvement focus the right to go with accreditation? Um, oh, outcome focus, improvement focus is a difference between those questions. When is the earliest point that you see a shift? And when is the earliest point you see the other shift? And so the, the, the website, you can look at it now if you wanted to, is, is on this little bit of paper and is on the top of the... Um, of the of that slide. Anyway, I've only spoken so far about hospital accreditation, hospital-wide accreditation. There are lots of other sorts of accreditations. One other sort of accreditation is accreditation of hospitals for training purposes of doctors. So surgical accreditation or uh, accreditation for anaesthetic training and so on. The interesting thing about accreditation now of that kind is it focuses on things like what sort of patients do you see, what sort of procedures are you doing in orthopaedic surgery or anaesthetics or whatever, how many staff do you have to supervise the trainees and so those sorts of factors are taken into account. You might say look this hospital is not, it may be okay for one year of training but not for five years of training because the, the, the patient mix isn't good enough or big enough or whatever. Interestingly they don't look at the outcomes. So there's two hypotheses here. Is it a good thing for a, a registrar, a trainee, to go to a hospital with a high complication rate or is it a bad thing? 
So if they go to a hospital with a high complication rate, you can see they can learn, they can see a lot of things that go wrong, and that's a good thing. Or go to a hospital with a low complication rate, and they learn how to do good surgery. So um, at the moment, they don't take any notice. So they send hospital they send trainees to both sorts of um, uh, hospitals. So we're arguing that medical colleges, as part of their accreditation processes should take the complication rate into account. And they should say to the hospitals with high co surgical complication rates, say the College of Surgeons, well, you need to look at your complication rate because otherwise we're going to withdraw accreditation for training surgeons, for example. That might actually focus the mind of some, some uh, surgeons too. Um, obviously, you still need a, a quality assurance process if things go wrong. So you say to the hospitals, you, you self-certify. Um, uh, about how you're going, and then uh, we'll only intervene with unannounced safety visits, no preparation, none of this event stuff, based on high risk that we've identified. So you move the, the approach from everything has to be looked at to saying we're going to focus on where things need to be focused on and we're not going to give you any notice at all, or just minimum notice, on the assumption that you always ought to be doing the standards or the practices or whatever. So we identified earlier a list of uh, problems from the literature, and so we're suggesting a list of solutions um, which we think address those problems uh, in a new approach to accreditation. The issue before you is whether you think, when do you think, or whether you think that's a good idea, and when do you think we could do it. So I'd really be interested in your, uh, if you could actually fill all that in at the moment. Um, there are the questions again. They should be on your uh, iPhone or Galaxy or if, if you're a Chinese spy, Weiwei. Um, um, and uh, uh, if you could fill that in. So, I'd be, so what we'll now do is have a look and see what, what you had to say. Uh, um, assuming the data are good enough, to what extent is a shift to an outcome focus the right way to go? Some really enthusiastic and some mostly enthusiastic, but no one thinks it's the wrong way to go, which is a which is a good sign. And is it moving from, so the first one was about outcomes, is it moving to an improvement focus? And again, um, oh, it's supposed to be locked. <laughs> um, uh, so that's uh, again saying, and then the question is, when? Um, so this, this is a, a real debate because um, uh, the mindset of the hospital industry is very much in the old paradigm and how long would it take to, to, to move this, this issue ahead? And most think not tomorrow. Um, I'd say the mean of that is sort of seven years, but it's you know an interesting... And finally what's the earliest you could move to an outcome focus and there's there's more support for an outcome focus to actually use the data in the accreditation process um, uh, over the next, uh, even the next few years. So thank you very much and now it's some time for questions. Okay, so we've got a, a mic um, wandering around. We are recording tonight's event, so if you can wait for the mic to get to you before you um, before you start asking your question, that would be great. And just pop your hands up when if you've got one. I see there's one. Yep, just down there. Great, thank you. 
great talk. Thank you. And I support your recommendations. But what I'm going to challenge you with is, um, uh, you know, we've just polled an opinion. And as Denning would say, um, without data, it's just an opinion. So what I was wanting to ask you is, what's the evidence base for the recommendations that you're making about the effectiveness of moving to outcome measures in terms of driving change? And also the second part of that is, could you comment on possible unintended consequences of moving to the new approach? So, um, a good question, thank you. Um, the, what, what, what we're saying is the current approach isn't working. The current approach uh, has all the failings I listed from the literature, uh, and so you've got to think about what would a new way of going. In, in both this report and our previous report, we've really emphasised the importance of information and the importance of putting information in the hands of clinicians and managers. And that is based on, uh, I suppose, a, a, a fair amount of evidence, mainly from uh, different sectors. Uh, so. Um, the so-called collaborative approaches in primary care and in hospitals um, and other clinical networks heavily based on, on providing information and improving information. So our view is that one of the ways of, of moving to change is an outcome basis to, to try and uh, provide information about outcomes and ask hospitals to respond to that. So do I have any evidence that is any other country doing this most of most interest is Denmark where they had a hospital accreditation process similar to ours which they abolished and what they did was replace it with a massive investment in uh, clinical data registries collecting a whole lot of information now that's only happened in the last five years or so so we don't really know what the what the effect of that has been, but they, they were sufficiently convinced that they said hospital accreditation wasn't adding any value and as said the literature by and large supports that, but people are anxious about it. In our consultation process on this on this report, that's essentially we had two different people, one saying, oh, you have got to have it, we've got to have it because there's nothing else and another saying the whole system needs a big shake-up and so it's, it's a judgment call. In terms of the improvement focus, again, we want to actually re-engage clinicians in this whole process and they're less likely to be engaged if they just see it as an irrelevancy. Oh, what, and unintended the, consequences? Un, unintended consequences. Um, I haven't... I, I really can't think of... The, 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 one of the, the people we consulted said... Oh, you know, they are aware of a situation where the host, where the, the fridge monitoring had failed and that was picked up in accreditation. So if you totally throw out the, the whole standards approach, um, then you, you're risking um, not picking up those sorts of things. But my view would be if, you, if they're sufficiently important that they will impact on patient care, you will pick them up because you pick it up through the outcomes. Another question? Yes, over on the left. Just perhaps to uh, extend that business of unintended consequences, 
Um, I think this is a hugely complex area, but one of the issues that I would like to ask you about is does your modeling take in, for example, case mix? And so what I mean by that is that one of the unintended consequences of having this sort of data, and I'll come back to that in a moment, is that you could find that physicians or clinicians don't take on highly complex cases in case there's a complication. So one of the downsides to this is that the data shows that as a result of the complication rate, you stop seeing or you stop taking on seriously complicated cases. So as far as the model is concerned, do you take into account the severity of the case mix of the patients or is this just an overview? So um, what I said is in that medical cardiology graph, we did every sort of risk adjustment you could possibly think of. Um, and so that was fully, fully risk adjusted um, because, yeah, that was fully risk adjusted. With the others, it's what might loosely be called weekly risk adjusted. That is, um, we haven't got a specialty specific risk adjustment model. We've done a essentially a hospital-specific risk-adjusted model. So <clears throat> better risk adjustment is specific to the procedures or the diagnoses that you're, um, that you're analysing, but we have just done it based on... <laughs> there are a number of uh, what might loosely be called generic risk adjusters, um, and the one we used is called the MAX, and I've got no idea what it stands for, but it's, um, there, there's a series of Alex Hauser and, and others have done risk-adjusted models which, which take account of essentially the number of body systems which are complicating the care, and the MAX is an improvement of those, but it's, a, but it's, a, it's not a specially specific risk adjustment. I won't, I won't hold this well. But that brings up a critical, critically fundamental issue, which is the nature of the data that you're looking at. Because all of your questions were predated by assuming the data yes. is acceptable. And so yeah. that comes back to how you put the data in and what data you get, because that's yeah. critically important to how your modelling works. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, none of you said that it's, it's going to be a re the, the reason we ask those questions is because we recognise that data have to improve. Mm. And um, in our data, you'll notice that I didn't put up any any comparisons between states, for example, in, in this. And that's because we can see in the data differences in coding quality between the states. And if you try and say there's a difference in the rate of complications between Victoria and New South Wales, you don't know whether it's differences in coding quality or differences in complication rates. So you can actually see in the data um, there are differences in coding. So obviously you have to actually work those through. Another question? Down the front. Thanks. Mike's on its way. Thanks, Lorna. <laughs> I've actually got three questions, if oh that's my. all right. Um, hopefully <laughs> two quick ones and then one perhaps longer one. Um, the first two questions were with the list of specialties. I was curious why oncology wasn't up there. 
And then also for the hospitals that you were talking about, I was just wondering if that's a mix of adult and children's or strictly adult. It's all hospitals, so adult and children's hospitals together um, or are included. Um, the, the I can't remember whether the, the list we have is what's called a list of so-called service-related groups and I don't... Medical oncology would be there through hematology, is it? Yeah, so um, it's it's a standard list of, of specialties. Um, so that's what we used. Uh, yeah. Third question? I guess if I could just quickly follow on from the oncology. I just think the data would be quite different if oncology was included because there are a number of complications. And if we're talking about complications and risk and... I guess oncology folk don't always, they're not a stoved piped scenario. They're often differing into, you know, dipping into other professions as well. So, yeah, yeah so just onco an Oncology, of co uh, the on cancer patients are in there. Mm -hmm. It's just they haven't been identified. And you may be right that that if if we analysed cancer patients, you might, you might see more relationship with each other. Yep, thank you. Um, and the third question was, I guess, is there any best practice anywhere in the world that is using um, consumer satisfaction? Because um, I noticed on that, the slide where you had with the number of circles, consumer education and engagement was in there. And I think that's definitely the way forward, like collaboration and partnership. How we do that is a whole new ball game. So I'm wondering if there's anywhere in the world um, that's involving consumers in a meaningful way? Because quite often you can have the stats and on paper it looks like, oh, yep, that was all successful, tick, tick, tick. If we wanted to use birth, you could say, oh, yeah, it was a textbook birth. But how the consumer, how the patient feels about that experience is often quite different. So if you, if you I, I pass quickly over that, but the three dimensions we think ought to be in a improvement and outcome-focused accreditation, uh, clinical outcomes, patient experience and staff experience um, because there um, is evidence that, well, they're different dimensions, but patient experience obviously is an important one to be included in, in, a, in, a, in, the, uh, in the improvement process. So just to clarify, you're talking about the new model you're proposing, the improvement yeah. focus, having consumers included as one of the three dimensions. Awesome. Yeah. That's great yeah. to hear. Yeah. Thank you. Do we have another question? Yeah, just in the middle here. While we're, made, while we're waiting for that, Stephen, I might follow on from that question just with one of our pre-submitted questions, which um, came from Laurie Brock. She's in the audience tonight. He's in the audience tonight. So consumers and consumer groups have been campaigning for adverse outcomes to be made public and more transparent in hospitals. Um, uh, why has it taken so long to address this issue? Um, well, I think there are a number of <laughs> that that in itself is a, another talk. Um, but there are a number of there are a number of factors. Some are technical. The discussion we had earlier about risk adjustment. Um, there are technical issues. Now, to be fair, New York State has been doing comparisons of performance and publishing them uh, for cardiac surgery for decades now. Um, but it is you, you do need to make sure you're, you've got ad adequate risk adjustment uh, to make sure the comparisons you're doing are fair. Uh, secondly, I think uh, there are we're going through 
eras of development uh, of patient safety and uh, to some extent we're stuck in the um, secret doctor's business or you know the, the risks of um, public reporting outweigh the, the benefits. And that was a view that I had 10 years ago, that the risks of public reporting outweighed the benefits of public reporting. Um, it's not a view I have now, partly because the, there has been so little movement in improving safety that I think we've got to actually start to destabilise the current complacency, really. And mm. so I've changed my view from opposed to public reporting to supporting public reporting. Um, I, having said that, it's, it's also fair to say that the literature um, is, 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 is a little bit mixed on public reporting, but by and large, it's uh, positive. Yes. Um, so through the talk, you've explained that um, complications for sentinel events were random and non-sentinel event, sentinel events are non-random, assuming. Um, but in complications are, are, is a very broad title for these events. And if in hospitals, there, there are expected events from certain procedures and unexpected events. And so I think those two classifications need to be examined separately. Um, so taking the oncology, oncology example, you would know that a certain proportion of patients having a chemotherapy regimen would have a neutropenic episode, and that's entirely expected. Whereas um, you'd have unexpected events, which are the ones which probably you need to focus more on trying to, to reduce the incidence or to have a big Yeah. Impact. So um, the, the hospital-acquired complications list was developed with a sort of preventability focus, the unexpected sort of focus. Uh, and I forget how they defined it, but it's something like with current knowledge, you'd know how to, to fix this. Um, and I'm, I'm not a great enthusiast for that because preventability um, varies by location. What is preventable at Royal Brisbane may not be preventable at Longreach. It varies over time. What was thought as not preventable 10 years ago is now seen to be preventable. Um, central line infections being a, a, a good example of that. Um, so that's it, not a concept I like. However, what I do like is a concept of reducibility. That is, yes, we expect a certain rate of complications in cancer patients, but some hospitals somehow seem to have a lesser rate. And so that's the group we can learn from, or we can say to the hospitals with a higher rate, why is your rate higher when others... So I've not claimed that we can eliminate all comp uh, complications. What I'm saying is some places seem to do it better. And so we ought to be aiming to be closer to more hospitals, to be, be more like the hospitals that are doing it better. So even though there are expected, inverted commas, complications, some are better at it than others. Other question? Sure. That also comes into to physician training and surgeon training. So um, trainees swap hospitals very frequently, and so the quality of the care delivered to patients is dependent on those trainees at that time. And the, the senior staff don't move, but mm. there's a lot of turnover, so always. 
Mm. And so whether that has an effect on complication rate. Yeah, I, that, that, I don't, I, I've not seen literature on that. I don't know. We're not able to look at that. One down the front here. If you have a question burning, if you can pop your hand up so that we know and we can try to get the microphone to you a little sooner. Uh, so, so my question relates to that one a lot. I was, I was also wondering about whether uh, rates of complications would fluctuate with the movement of trainees several times a year. Um, and so with the model of um, providing more information to hospitals at the time of accreditation, how often would that be? Would it be valuable to have uh, so, more dynamic? So I sort of said not once every three years, but, mm. you know, essentially annually or six-monthly, so more frequently than accreditation. So you provide the information frequently, but you only have the accreditation visit irregularly. Oh, we did look at, um, in our previous report, incidents of complications by month, and we saw a January effect, um, but um, not much of an effect with other rotation periods uh, during the year. Thanks, yes. Stephen. Um, I've got a question about, uh, so you're basically talking about realising uh, the best decile's performance. If we can get everyone up to the best yeah. decile, we can get better outcomes and improve patients' care. Um, and publishing that will give an incentive uh, to do that. But I'm wondering how, so in other examples where we've tried to publish information and improve care, like with VLADs, for example, where you have upper flags and lower flags, when you're in Queensland Health, for example, VLADs came in, um, and we're trying to pass lessons from the best performers to the worst performers. And sometimes the best performers don't know, probably, possibly don't know why they're the best performers. And they don't know what to say to the poor performers. So in my understanding in VLADs that we've stopped doing passing the best guys' performance knowledge on to the worst guys and trying to figure out how to improve their outcomes. Yeah. Um, so do you know, what evidence do you have for translating the best 10% guys to the rest? Um, I agree the information out there might just in itself give an incentive for people to, to improve, but information doesn't always change outcomes. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely, absolutely. So there's a bit of literature about what in the literature is called positive deviance, um, which is where all of this stuff comes from. And you're right, sometimes they don't know that they're, <laughs> they're a better performer and sometimes they don't know what they're doing right. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, so, but sometimes they do. Sometimes they have standardised, they have processes. What's happening in Queensland Health now, I think, is there's a greater emphasis on actually defining best practice pathways of care and so on uh, as part of the the digital health rollouts and so that might also help to standardize um, and and then you can say well this is the care path followed in this hospital this is sort of the practice in this other hospital and and what and, and start to look at the outcomes and moving from one to another but you're right they may not know what they're doing that's right but you can then start to compare what they're doing another question down the front um, Stephen, there's a, a school of thought that says that um, current ad adverse events, adverse reactions, complications are due to a lack of good information at the point of care and that is the premise on which there's 
a whole lot of investment in digital health to provide that information. Can you make any comment about the investments and, and what impact that will have on safety? So um, I don't think there is a single cause that you can address and that's going to fix all our problems. Yes, I think there the fact that we don't have perfect information at the point of service delivery is a contributing factor. Do I think it's... I, I've never put a percentage figure on it, but I'm one of those who thinks it's the right way to go to actually have electronic health records and digitise the hospital. Um, but I... And in my report in Victoria, I recommended that this be done uh, over a seven-year period. Um, but I wouldn't... I have, haven't... I don't have any basis for saying what proportion of complications would disappear as a result of that. Okay, we can probably fit in two more questions um, as long as they're nice quick ones. So we've got there and then just there. Thanks. Just a relatively quick question again, sorry. Um, more of a philosophical point because obviously if you're going to look at revamping the system and you have safety in mind, which of course I think we'd all agree would be the ultimate outcome. Have you tried to look at other industries or integrated models from other industries rather than the healthcare alone? Because people have tried to revamp this worldwide. And I'm particularly thinking of the airline industry, where safety is absolutely paramount. Yeah. Um, well, I think if John Wakefield were here, he would say that Queensland Health exported its quality processes to the airline industry. They actually did some teaching of the airline industry <coughs> uh, in past years. But um, we did actually at one stage in our forthcoming report have an appendix which looked at other industries and what they were doing, but we decided to chop it um, off the basis of space. But yes, I mean, certainly someone mentioned Edward Stemming, um, certainly this the emphasis on measurement and so on is is much is really intense in most other industries final question i wonder if you're in a position to comment on the proposed model that you're putting forward how it differs from what's been going on with the health round table um, process um, so the health round table is for those who don't know it is a uh a voluntary uh, collaborative arrangement with um, 70, 80, I don't know how many hospitals around Australia and New Zealand. Um, and so what we're suggesting is not voluntary, that is, it becomes the system. Uh, Health Roundtable does things other than quality measurements, and um, but th there are similarities, yes. And on that note, we will have to bring tonight to a close. Um, if you didn't get your question answered, Stephen may be around for a little little moment after the um, after we finish. You could potentially try and um, ask him a question then. Also, continue to follow the conversation on Twitter as well. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Vicky and the State Library for hosting us this evening um, and the State Library staff for assisting us. And one of them, thank you for jumping up as well. <laughs> Appreciate that. Thank you also to Stephen for the presentation tonight. It was really fascinating and I'm sure everybody really enjoyed it. Um, and
And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can, at Grattan Inst. You can also find this podcast um, on our podcast channel. Um, and, yeah, I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank everyone for coming tonight. So thank you very much. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.